Hello everyone, Rob Guest from Football.London here and welcome to the latest episode of Gold and Guest Tot Tottenham. It was a night to forget at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium on Wednesday evening with Southampton claiming a late 3-2 victory over Tottenham. There's plenty to discuss in that defeat and we'll also be looking ahead to Sunday's Premier League clash against Wolves and also having a look at Tottenham's review into the Y-word. Alistair Gold is joining me as ever. Ali, how are you despite that defeat? <laughs> yes, I'm all right. Um, still on the roller coaster ride that is Tottenham Hotspur under Antonio Conte. We're uh, getting very good performances like the one against Brighton. And then with the same 11 players, we're seeing an absolutely horrendous display like the one against Southampton. Um, yeah. Not great, but it gives us plenty to talk about and uh, where things can go from here and what needs to improve and what was just quite frankly appalling on the night. Um, yeah, there's loads for us to talk about. Yeah, there's literally loads to talk about. So first things first, we'll both give our thoughts on the uh, 3-2 defeat. For me, I mean, it wasn't good at all, was it, from a Tottenham yeah. perspective? I mean... Especially the first time. Yeah, you've got to give credit to Southampton, though. First and foremost, they yeah. did play very well and they certainly deserved the three points. I think looking at the stats after the game, was it 23 shots on goal, 10 on target compared to Spurs having three shots on target from eight attempts? And, yeah. you know, literally from the first whistle, there was a warning. I think it was after three minutes when Hugo Lloris was called into action with a cross coming in from Southampton's left and Che Adams probably perhaps should have done a lot better then uh, when he was at point-blank range, but he was just constant really down Tottenham's left. Saints just looked to exploit Tottenham's weakness and they did numerous times when close uh, quite often Hugo Lloris a lot busier than perhaps a lot of people expected but then you know Tottenham just hit Saints didn't they really worked uh, well worked goal with uh, Jan Bednarek putting the ball through his own net from a Pierre-Emil Hoybier cross but then Saints uh, responded Armando Broya scoring looked like Spurs had you know, seeing off that Saints fight in the second half by going ahead through Son. But, you know, Saints just kept going and got two late goals. I mean, where do you want to talk about <laughs> on this defeat? Where do you want to start? I mean, there's so much to discuss. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's slightly... I suppose, yeah, it slightly concerns me about some games under Conte is that Spurs still look like the visiting team when they're at home sometimes. And the possession, you know, I know possession isn't everything, but they don't boss games. Even the Brighton game, you know, Brighton had chances that had they been better in front of goal, you know, the game could have very quickly turned in a different direction. Um, yeah, again, yesterday I felt Spurs gave up so much possession to Southampton. Southampton, as you rightly say, were, were very good. They deserve far more credit uh, than they're probably getting because Spurs fans, understandably, are so disappointed with Tottenham's display. They're kind of maybe not taking into account fully just how good Southampton were. Um, you know, you, you do wonder if they had a, you know, a really top-class finisher up front, just how they, they could have absolutely tonked Tottenham. They really could have. Um, yeah... I think the fact that it was the same 11 players worried me uh, in a way. 
it just showed there were different levels of desire. Um, as the word that a fair few of the players since in their interviews have said is passive, and I agree. Um, it's kind of quite meek they were. I felt in the centre of the pitch, you know, Winks and Hoybier, a lot just went by them. Uh, or they did get it and they gave it away to them. Um, you know, I asked Conte after the game whether he was disappointed with the defending and he launched into a near five-minute answer, which I was actually, I actually had a follow-up question. I kind of ditched it because I thought if I if I ask another one, <laughs> everyone has to be so annoyed because the press conference could be a 10-minute one with two questions from me. Um, and he was he was really good his answer though it was very um, thought out which I suppose is somewhat surprising because he's such an emotional character you know and you and I both know that he has to have this cooling down period before he comes out for his press conferences where he decompresses and and he definitely would have needed that because on the touchline he was absolutely you know one moment he was celebrating like Marco Tardelli down the touchline and literally seconds later he was giving it to Romeo and Bednarak who were in the referee's ear about the foul on Broya. Um, so, yeah, to actually have a really thought-out, insightful answer was terrific. Um, but, yeah, it kind of leads us into various avenues. I mean, I mean, first off, what did you think of the team selection on the day? Did you feel that you should have stuck with a winning team? Or did you feel that with three games in eight days, maybe it needed some changes? Or do you think that some of the subs from the Brighton game maybe put a claim to start? I thought he would have altered it, but only slightly. I was expecting two changes, and for me, those two two changes, one of those would have been Rodrigo Bentenke coming into the team, probably instead of Harry Winks, and then Lucas Mora probably dropping out for Stephen Bergwijn or maybe even Dejan Kulusevski. But, you know, Lucas is a favourite of Antonio Conte. He might lose the ball a lot as quite a few people in the press box do point out when he runs into trouble quite often. But he does have an impact on the game in the final third for Spurs. He obviously played a key role in the first set of the second. So, you know, you're always going to get something from Lucas. Uh, So they were probably the ones I would have changed. And then you're just looking at Benton Kerr as soon as he comes onto the pitch. And within 30 seconds, he had... Tottenham fans on the feet, really. Uh, really good turn to fool his marker and then a brilliant sprayed pass out to his right to release Lucas. Uh, they were the ones I probably would have changed, especially when February is such a, a key month for the club anyway. With three games in the week, I do think you need to alter things slightly. I think he, he defi- definitely will have to on Sunday now against Wolves, but yeah, I probably would have done it in the middle game, really, just to keep everyone on the toes, keep everyone fresh. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're spot on. I think it's probably similar to what I would have done. Um, but then, you know, <laughs> neither of us are five-time league-winning managers. So I appreciate that, yeah, um, we're perhaps, uh, you know, not as, uh, not, nowhere near as, as qualified to make these calls. But, yeah, I think Bentenker... You know, I think, like you say, it was another substitute appearance that kind of showed that Tottenham need him. I think they do, especially with Skip out. I think Skip being out, they lose a lot of drive and aggression in that midfield. And I get the impression that Benteke is going to bring some of that. But also with, he looks like he's got an idea how to play a forward pass, which is going to be helpful. Yeah, like you say, that ball out to Lucas, it was a funny ball. It was like, um, it was sprayed, but it was quite a low ball. 
he just found the gap perfectly through to him. And uh, yeah, and his reading of the game seems that little bit better as well. Um, yeah, Lucas is a funny one. I, obviously, nodding away while you're saying that about him because he is a player that people will know frustrates me a lot because, and it's a frustration born of the quality he has. You know, if he wasn't a really good player, I don't think I'd get so frustrated with him because, yeah, you look at last night and you look at the fact that when it mattered, I guess, he had two big key impacts. Lovely reverse ball to Hoybier for the first goal um, and, um, yeah, the cross for Sonny for the second. And and he does. He does come up with these big moments. But if you'd have taken those in isolation or taken them out of the game it's difficult to kind of see the other impacts he had. Um, and yeah, people could quite, quite rightly point out, well, he's an attacker. If he has two big impacts in two goals, bang, he's done his job. But I just feel that he's good enough a player to really help Spurs dominate what they're doing up front. And, you know, he's 29 now. Um, we're going to come on to this in a minute. But, you know, Spurs are looking for leaders out there. And there's nothing stopping him as one of the experienced players just to, to kind of say, right, let's come on, calm down. Calm down in possession. But unfortunately, you know, he and Harry Kane, albeit, you know, maybe they were trying things, but they had the two lowest possession stats in the entire team. Was, I think it was 66 and 63. Um, that's when, yeah, Spurs should just be a bit more calm. And when it's from older players, I feel that's where it lets them down. Um, it was a difficult one. There were so many players that I felt did well against Brighton that had a... a they kind of let themselves down slightly. I mean, it was so mixed in some aspects. Like, Davinus Sanchez, I think, is the perfect kind of encapsulation of it all. For me, in the first half, I actually felt he was one of the defenders that was probably trying to stop, trying to bail out the other players. And he was making some great, you know, even in the, the first goal for Broya, it was like he was. <laughs> He was trying to head it away at one point. It was trying to kick it away. And just everyone else around him was slipping or letting the ball go by them. But then as he tried to use the ball as the match wore on, he was also giving it away a fair bit. And there was one point it was intercepted, I think, just inside his own box as well. It was just so inconsistent. And that was one of the things Conte spoke about. He said, we just need to get this stability. We don't have stability in the way we play. Um, he said the players are too emotional, you know. They were 2-1 down against Leicester with a like added time left and and they won 3-2. And he said, and today we've gone out and 2-1 uh, up against Southampton and we've lost it 3-2 in kind of almost very similar but switched around circumstances. Um, and it's true. There's an emotional side to the game. We've always had this thing where do Tottenham only kind of wake up after they've taken the first hit, after they've taken the first punch? You know, it's... Uh, they're a strange team. They don't start games very well, a lot at all. And, you know, first half yesterday was up there with the Leeds first half as being an absolute rotten performance. It really was awful. How they went in 1-1, I have no idea. Saints had 15 of their shots on goal in that first half. Um, Spurs, that's the irony. Spurs did improve in the second half. Conte had some words with them. He... Um, he told them essentially, look, yeah, you've made mistakes, but the only way to fix those mistakes is to up your energy, up your tempo, up your pressing, and then you won't make as many. And they did improve, but then obviously, uh, organisation-wise, just fell apart in the latter stages of the game. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we've touched on it. I, I do think that's kind of a key point, is the leadership. What do you think 
Who do you think are the leaders in Tottenham's team? Would you say are true leaders? Out of the team who played last night or in general? Both. Both. Let's start with the team last night and then chuck in the players that you feel will bring that. Out of the team last night, Hugo Lloris, obviously, is captain. When we did the matches behind closed doors over the past couple of years, you actually realised how much Hugo shouts because you can't hear him during the game because of the crowd. So he's certainly a leader. Uh, Harry Kane's a leader. I don't think he's a vocal leader, someone who's going to tell you what to do. Maybe another player who perhaps leads by example and follow what he does. Other than that, I don't know. From the team who started last night, that's the worry. Uh, Eric Dyer, for me, is a natural leader and actually did a piece. Yeah, actually did a piece on the importance of Dyer and Skip. And obviously, we'll come on to this in a bit. But Eric Mm. Dyer is a leader. Yes, he does have his critics, but he's come on an awful lot under Conte. And Conte obviously sees something in him. Dyer as well can speak a number of languages. So that helps him with Romero at his side or Sanchez just to get everyone, you know, playing the right way and controlling things. So Dyer is a huge miss. But when you look at that Tottenham team, you've got Davinson Sanchez, who, yes, he's still quite young. Is he, what, 24, 25? But it has been around a fair few years now. He's got a lot of experience from playing at Ajax and he's been at Tottenham since 2017. Ben Davis has been at Tottenham since 2014, an experienced player, both at club level and on the international stage. Perhaps not the loudest player, but another one maybe like Kane, who you want to them to uh, lead by example. Uh, Hoibjerg, for me, is a leader as well. He didn't have his best game at all, did he, last night? And you're probably expecting a bit more from him. And then up front, you've got Lucas and Son, who were in the late 20s, Kane, late 20s now. So there is an awful lot of experience there, but in terms of leadership, perhaps not. And as you said, that's the issue. Yeah, I mean, within that big, long five-minute answer they gave, there was one kind of key line I felt for me, Conte said, and it's, I think that this is a situation that we have to improve. And also, I repeat, in a team, it's important to have players with experience to manage the situation during the game. So I kind of looked at that and I thought, does he mean that they don't have such players? Is that what he means? Does he mean that, you know, Spurs transfer profile is very much they bring in younger players that will either retain their value or increase in value? Do they perhaps steer clear of signing older leader types? you know, the older fans will remember players like sometimes Spurs would bring in people like Nuruddin Nabet. There's like a very experienced centre-back to help guide a younger player in Ledley King, and they don't really do that anymore, that sort of thing. Um, or did he just mean, was he having a bit of a, a pop at his older players and saying, you know, it's down to you guys to, to lead the, the younger players? And I kind of looked at it, and, and like you... I, I think he might have been going towards the latter. I think I think he's probably somewhere in the middle. He kind of sometimes has called Spurs quite a young team, which I don't actually believe they really are anymore. And I think that's what almost feel like the Spurs players need to believe that as well. It's like you say, that front three, Kane, 28, Lucas and Son, both 29. That's three very experienced players, all played in Champions League final. 
Um, you can't get much bigger than that. They've played in, you know, Keynes has played in a European Championships final, you know. Um, Sonny is the man that carries the hopes of a country, essentially, when he plays for South Korea. So he knows what pressure is all about. Lucas has not only given us that huge moment in Amsterdam, but he also won what, about three league titles with PSG. He's won cups galore with PSG. They're three attackers who have played in the big games, not, should know how to manage big games, um, and, and I feel that they should be playing their part as well in, in leading that team, not just looking for them to come up in little moments, but actually laying down the law in a way. And then you come to that midfield, Hoybier and Winks, both 26 now. They're not kids. They're, they're not kids at all. Winks has played in that Champions League final. He's played in big matches. Um, do I see him as an authority figure? Unfortunately not. I don't think he is. I mean, I watched him. He had a proper go at Davinson Sanchez for not closing down one shot from the edge of the box. Uh, Davinson kind of came out with his arms behind his back doing that classic, I'm going to turn and not give away a penalty. And Winks absolutely laid into him. But rather than respecting the what perhaps was constructive criticism, Sanchez absolutely gave it back to Winks and presumably was saying, well, where were you? Why were you not tracking him? I mean, that may have been what he was saying. And that kind of created this weird moment where the fans actually started to get quite annoyed that two of their own players were arguing with each other. It was like, just kind of come on, get on with it. Hoybier is a really interesting one. Obviously, he was Southampton captain, so he's a guy that clearly has some leadership ability. And we've heard him talk. He's very articulate. He's very passionate in the way he speaks. And every, he's kind of like a, a bit of a life guru, the way he talks. Is very, you know, you can imagine him doing one of these kind of self-help classes to people. But have I seen him being a leader on the pitch for Tottenham in the big moments when they're kind of maybe struggling a bit? I don't know if I have yet. It may be something that's to come. I don't know. Um, but I'm not entirely sure. Like on a night like last night, this is a guy who, albeit when he was younger, you know, but he's played in big matches for Bayern Munich when he was younger. He's got titles to his name with them. Admittedly, some of those titles he probably didn't play too much a role in. But he's certainly, I, I look back and he's, you know, he's played in cup finals. He's played an extra time in cup finals with Bayern. Um, he's not a guy who's without his experience of big games at all. And obviously with Denmark as well in the European Championships, he, he had those. Big moments as well. So, again, I'm struggling to see inexperienced young players out there. Um, and the back line, the back line is maybe where you could find it last night. I suppose you could point to someone like Ben Davies and say maybe he should be the kind of the calming head there. Um, obviously, he was unfortunate with the slip. I don't know if he, that's one you can massively criticise him for. He looked more unfortunate than anything. He kind of went to clear the ball and slipped for the first goal. Loris, like we say, does talk. He's very vocal, but how much a goalkeeper can do about changing what's happening on the whole pitch in front of him, I don't know. I think I'm just struggling to see who is the embodiment of Conte on the pitch, who is kind of the man who puts into practice exactly what he wants the team to do. His, his you know, his, oh, especially, I suppose, his manager on the pitch, I guess it is. Um, and that's where I'm struggling to see it. Like you say, I think Dyer could help with that. I think Skippy could become that one day. I think it's far too early to suggest he can be now. But obviously, there's a feeling within the club he will one day become a Spurs captain. And Mourinho, you know, very publicly said that as well. But yeah, I just feel like in moments like yesterday, there's no one that just grabs the team by the scruff of the neck and says, come on, sort yourselves out. 
it takes a half-time talk from Conte to kind of do it. It doesn't seem to be happening on the pitch at all. So, yeah, that's that's one going to be one of the key issues. And, you know, it may be that someone like Rodrigo Bentenker comes in, three times title winner with Juventus. Maybe he comes in and brings that little sense of calm to the midfield, um, hopefully. But I think there's a, so much for Conte to work on still. I think when you're in, like, when you're 2-1 up in in the final 15 minutes, you just got to be smart, really, have a bit of nouse about you. Because Tottenham are going to find themselves in this situation between now and the end of the season quite a lot. Because, as you said, there's been plenty of games where they've not played well, but still managed to go ahead. Leeds, the classic example, uh, back in November, absolutely dreadful in the first half. Got a bit of a rollicking at half-time, managed to turn it around and... You thought that was going to be the case yesterday against Southampton. I think they just need to be smart because if not, they will drop points and that could prove crucial come the end of the season. I think, you know, good teams grind out the points. Uh, Do you remember what Hassan Hootel said in his presser afterwards? What was that about what the target? Uh, He said, we know that when Tottenham score or when they go ahead, they sit back. Yeah. And that's, that's got, feeds into exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And obviously, if you're sitting back, you're just inviting pressure on yourselves, maybe. Yeah. I know Jose Mourinho, when he was at his pomp, you know, in terms of defending leads and that, he was an absolute master of it. And we, we saw it a few times during his Spurs career. I think they just need to be a bit smarter going into final 10-15 minutes when they are in the lead because as I said given some of the performances so far this season they're going to find themselves in that position quite a lot and unless you know they can put the games to bed a lot earlier on than uh, they have been doing. Shall we talk about Tottenham's second goal because there was quite a bit of controversy about that uh, yeah well worked goal We'll have to say with uh, Son scoring from Lucas's cross. Yeah, Southampton Winks, Winks played it out, didn't he, to Lucas as well? Pretty sure it was Winks. I think Winks won it, and then did he feed it to Kane? Why to Lucas? I think we'll have to double check. But yeah, I think yeah. Winks and Kane did both have a part to play in that. But mm. yeah, Ralph Harsen Hull was not impressed at all because Emerson Royale had gone up for the ball with uh, Amanda Broya. Must have caught Broya on his neck or head. He went down, uh, and obviously the rules after is a head injury. Games usually stopped. It did carry on. I must say, I didn't think it was a foul personally, and I think you're of that opinion as well. And I think so, yeah, yeah, Hassan Hussel, uh had plenty to say when the ball hit the net, and there was uh, plenty of uh, finger pointing, wasn't there? And a few words exchanged between uh, both coaching teams on the sidelines. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I think Hassan Hootel almost walked off. There was a sense from some of the um, some of the questions some of the Southampton reporters were putting to him afterwards. Almost uh, whether he'd said it in another interview after the game, I don't know. But he did disappear for a moment. I don't know whether he headed towards the tunnel. I don't know. Obviously, we we couldn't see the TV images, so I don't know what was happening. But yeah, I I don't think it was a foul. I can see why it would be given. Sometimes, definitely, because it looked like he was, you know, clumped around the head, I guess, with essentially Emerson's backside pretty much got him. But 
if you kind of if you look at it as it is, I think Emerson just climbed above him. Broyer was edging back, maybe towards him rather than trying to head the ball. If I'm going to be, you know, particularly clinical about it. Um, yeah, I mean, Southampton were calling for the foul. They felt it was a foul. Conte, like I said, went absolute bananas in celebration. He was running around like he just won the World Cup. And then I think, I don't know whether he feared that perhaps they'd start doing some kind of VAR review because the Southampton players were talking to the referee. You know, like I say, Romeo and um, Bednarak were both doing it, and he was pointing at them. He was getting very angry, Conte, with them. Um, but to be honest, all all situations are checked by VAR initially. So VAR would have already looked at that and said, no, you're right, that that's, doesn't look like a foul to us. Um, there's this kind of weird expression in football, and even journalists are guilty of it. I, I have, people will sometimes ask, like, did it go to VAR? That's like, everything goes to VAR. It's just whether they have a lengthy pause to properly scrutinise it um, if they can't tell from their first look. So, yeah, you know, the referee, linesman, VAR all decided it wasn't a foul. Um, Southampton were very angry about it. It was one of those where, I'll be honest, as it were on, and they started to bring the stretcher out and the treatment was being done, I started to think, oh, crikey, I hope he's not really hurt. And we've kind of, that's got lost in all of this. But to be fair, he just jumped up and then kind of after that and started playing as absolutely normal and actually played pretty well. He did uh, Breuer towards the end of the game. So I don't really know what was going on there, but it was such a rare moment of quality from Tottenham. You know, they, they had other little moments. There's one that's probably got lost in the sands of time now. But Sergio Reguard had a huge chance at the start of the game. Um, I think that was a was it Son to Kane, and then Kane played it right across the box, completely unmarked Reguard. And I don't know if it was yourself said this or another reporter. You don't trust Reguard in those moments. You don't almost expect him to score. He's just now. He gets into some good areas and he does what I think Emerson still needs to do on the other side is to be on the other side of the box when the ball comes in from the, the other side. But I don't ever trust that he's going to put the ball in the net. And as soon as forced to kind of spread himself, made himself big, it was like, okay, that's not going to get past him, is it? It was a huge chance, you know. Had they scored that and then obviously you don't know how it works, whether they still would have scored the next goal as well or not, but it would have been a very early stamp on the game and maybe would have settled a few nerves. But um, the other thing I was going to ask you, completely off topic from what we're talking about, why did Tottenham, who have been one of the teams, especially under Poch, been so good at pressing other teams, why is pressing also their weakness? I have no idea. <laughs> I no idea at all. Uh, I think Conte was asked, wasn't he? Yeah. After the game about obviously Southampton pressing them and Southampton caused the major issues in in oh, the uh, first half and then the, over the course of the game. Yeah, you just want Spurs to get back to what they were under Pochettino and just doing that press, being in control of the game, causing issues for the opposition, not the other way around. Yeah, it's uh, it's not good. Uh, I think you're right, actually. I think that maybe that's where the answer lies. Maybe it's the fact that they're not being proactive themselves and they're not pushing up the pitch. So it means they're naturally sitting back and they lead themselves open to being pressed. And they have players at the back that just panic. I mean, you and I see them every pre-match going through their rondo drill 
close, tight control, passing. It's starting to feel a little bit like practicing a penalty shootout. It doesn't mean anything. It's almost like, does it really recreate the situation you're going to find yourself in? Because as soon as they get out there, I mean, God, you know, Emerson. Every time Emerson, someone pressed him, the ball was pretty much, you know, well, the stats show. It was almost half of the times he played a pass, it went to a Southampton player. I felt Winks and Hoybier the same. Every time they were pressed, um, they really struggled to know what to do with the ball. Sanchez gave the ball away too many times. I'd say Romero, although I don't think he was as good at anywhere near as good as he was against Brighton, he was probably one of the better ones in possession. I think his stats were something like 84%. It was pretty good. Um, yeah, maybe that's what it is. Maybe they're leaving themselves open to this pressing by not being proactive enough themselves. There you go. You fixed it. Go and tell Antonio quickly. Yeah, you can pass the message on tomorrow when he's speaking in his <laughs> yeah. press conference. I know what he'll say. He'll say, what do you think I've been trying to do? <laughs> I've been trying to get them up the pitch. Every manager tries to get them pressing consistently. and No one's managed it since Poch for some reason. I don't understand it. Is it laziness? Is it a lack of desire? I don't know. But they're at their best when they press. It's, it's not rocket science. Shall we discuss Southampton's two late goals then? Because I think there's, again, yeah, I think we have to, and there's plenty to discuss. They were identical almost, weren't they? Obviously, first, James Ward-Prowse swinging in the ball, uh, Elliot Nussi making the run, scoring the good header. Then, literally, what was it, two minutes later, Ward-Prowse again. I mean, you just cannot give him time and space in and around the box because you just know the quality he's got. And Che Adams, credit to him, a very good header. Larice, no chance. To be fair, Larice had no chance for all three goals. No, I didn't. no, not at all. They were really good headers. So, in your view, then, in terms of the Southampton's last two goals, who are you looking at in terms of a Tottenham perspective? Because they both were avoidable. Um, I think kind of the faults on both sides. I think both crosses that came in were in acres of space to make that cross. Um, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, it would have been Regulon and Davies, I presume, not communicating. One of those had to go out. Um, then on the other side, Emerson seemed to be, well, for the first goal in the first half, Emerson did this weird letting the ball roll across his body, yeah. which allowed them to get the ball back into the box, which I have no idea why he didn't just boot it away. Um, for the two late goals, he was kind of nowhere to be seen. He was like trailing in at the back and not really having a man. Um, I was trying to think. I think the second goal, I remember kind of feeling that he wasn't tracked into the box at all. Um, And that was, you know, a key element as well. Sanchez, it's a difficult one. Sanchez in this awkward position of, there's one of the goals I've seen, he looks like he's covering Romero's man that he feels that he hasn't got, which sucks him inside and leaves that gap behind him. Um, yeah, no, I've been intrigued to know. That's where I, the reason I asked about the defending in the start, in the first place, in my question yesterday, was, was hopefully I thought Conte might go into a bit of specifics, but I get the impression he's probably not that kind of guy that's going to talk about individuals. Um, but I'd, I'd be fascinated to know kind of from his mind where the fault lay. Was it in not letting the cross come in the first place, was it? He kept talking about the line, the defensive line he wasn't happy with. I think there's a there's a screen grab going round of one point in the match where Tottenham's defences are, are all over the place and the midfielder just sitting there kind of 
dealing with nobody. Um, yeah, I mean, Emerson, Emerson had a bit of a mare of a game last night. He really did. Um, I completely agree with Conte that he's 22, uh, sorry, 23. I'm doing the Conte thing now. Conte is always calling him 22 when he's 23. But he is still young and he's still got a lot kind of to improving to do. He's very raw. But I feel last night was when we saw a lot of the bad elements of Emerson. Um, I often kind of feel that his defending is quite good and that maybe gets overlooked because of the deficiencies in attacking quality. But last night, his defending was a bit all over the place. He wasn't confident in his tackles. He gave the ball away a lot. And, and going forward was just a write-off. It's just it was almost like it wasn't worth him being there. Um, yeah, yeah. It's one of those where I think they'll look at it as a unit and see where all the failings came for both goals, to be honest. Yeah, I've had a look at him a few times this morning and I think obviously Emerson's coming for a lot of criticism. For me, I think some of that criticism's harsh on him. Just mm. going back and looking at them, yeah. I think looking at Elian Nooses, Elian makes a run into the box, he's not tracked. Kulosevsky, Elian is coming over Kulosevsky's left shoulder. Kulosevsky yeah. looks at him twice but doesn't track the run. Now okay. he goes into the yeah he goes into that space between Sanchez and Emerson. Then Emerson's noticed him. So I think Emerson's already got Che Adams marked. So Emerson notices that run, moves into the middle to try and cover it, but obviously it's too late. Yeah. And then for the second one, it's hard to tell on the highlights because they've just clipped it as soon as Ward Prowse swings in the uh, his cross. Yeah. But having a look at a few of the still images, it looks like Sanchez is initially on Adams, has him marked. Then Adams just, you know, backs away from him. Sanchez oh. doesn't follow it. Then that's why he's free again. And Emerson's basically has to try and come across and get to him again. But yeah, it <laughs> went in. So yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think... I know there has been a bit of criticism about Emerson for those goals, maybe a bit harsh in my view, but I think it's one of those you probably just have to look at a few a few times and come to your yeah. own conclusions, really. But definitely worth seeing again if you haven't already, I think. Yeah, yeah quite right. Right. Should we talk about the importance of Eric Dyer and Oliver Skip, because I think it does need to be said, really. Uh, I mean, you've mentioned Oliver Skip already. I've mentioned Dyer. And I think in terms of Conte's pre-match comments, it shows the importance of Skip, because Skip at the moment has is it a groin injury he's got. Yeah, it's a funny one. He's, he had a yeah. groin injury, which I then think he got a, a bit of an infection during the rehab, and it's kind of complicated it slightly, but he, he's... He's almost back. Um, yeah, no, I know the quote you took. Actually, it was to my question, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I asked about Skippy and he was like, he kind of admitted he's pushing the medical department to try and get him back sooner than the two weeks they've said. He's like, no, oh, I want it to be maximum seven, ten, seven to ten days because he's an important player for me. And that says it all. I put that in my piece this morning. It's a bit like a 21-year-old midfielder has actually – Perhaps been the most become the most important midfielder Tottenham have because he just brings that energy and drive, and he's never passive. That's one thing you can never say about Oliver Skip. He's never passive. He will always be aggressive in that midfield, and 
you know, you and I said this under Nuno in games where Nuno benched him. Spurs looked like they were missing something in the middle. And I feel that under Conte, we're seeing that as well. And that, you know, for him, a manager who's, you know, managed some of the best and the things he says about Skippy are very um, complimentary while also saying that he's still got a lot to improve on, which is right. The same with any 21-year-old. But I think the fact that he's now come out and said he's an important player for me, that's like Conte's I can count on him moment. That's like a... He he's one of my guys, and uh, yeah, I, I do. I think I think they miss a big, they have a big hole when he's not in that midfield. Yeah, it was extremely noticeable in September against Chelsea and Arsenal, and then yeah. when he came on at, against Arsenal, they played a lot, lot better. And it is you just notice it when he isn't there. They're not as good in midfield as you said earlier. There's just that lack of aggression. You just wanting someone who's going to be pressing his opponents, you know, trying to win the ball off them. Skip can also, you know, play it forward as well. He's shown that. Uh, they just didn't get a foothold in the game last yeah. night, Hoibjerg and Winks. And it was no surprise to see Hoibjerg come off after an hour. And yeah, Rodrigo Bentenker came on. And I think for me, he's got to be in the starting lineup on Sunday against Wolves. Uh, made an impact within the first 30 seconds, did extremely well in his 13 minutes on the pitch uh, against Brighton the other day. I think he's got to be in there. It's just a question of who starts next to him, depending on Oliver Skip's fitness, really. You have the same opinion? Yeah, I think so. I think he has to. You know, just looking back to last night, if Skip and Benton could both been on the bench... I think they both would have played. I think that was. I think it was so close between Winks and Hoybier who actually came off. You know, I think both would have if they'd been available. Those two. I, I do worry slightly that we're now in this phase of Spurs fans are starting to really scapegoat not only Winks but Hoybier as well, which I think is un, it's unfair on both because I think Winks has shown moments under Conte that look like he can adjust to how he wants him to play. I don't know whether it's in the midfield too. I think Winks maybe sits better in the midfield three. Uh, and with Hoybier, you know, <sighs> Jonathan Veal from the Press Association, Press Association was saying this last night, and I kind of agree with him, that Hoybier, because he's made a few bad passes and things like that, maybe the narrative about him is being slightly rewritten. And I agree. I think I do agree. You know, last season, he was one of Spurs' best players. He tired towards the end of the season because he was playing almost every minute. Uh, he had a break, went away to the Euros and was one of Denmark's best players. And I do think this year, he's had a lot of good performances as well. And then maybe just his, I don't know, there's almost this feeling that like he's average and he'll never reach a certain level or something. And there's this thing about Spurs are always going to be bottom table, bottom, bottom half while they've got certain players in their team. I even saw someone last night tagging every player they felt was below par in a tweet and sending it to them. And it's like, oh, what is going on in the world? Um, I don't think he's an average player whatsoever, Hoybier. I think he's a guy that maybe in his attempts to push Spurs on, maybe tries passes that aren't in his locker. Um, you know, there was one pass last night he did. Where there was like two Southampton players right in front of him and he tried to pass it between them to another person. It was like, no, there's no gap to do that. But what I think he, you know, there's a lot else to his game where he's very good at. 
and you know, and to ignore how good he was last season for Tottenham and just make out he's a bad player, I think is 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 mad. Um, but yeah, saying that, who would you put in ben, Benzenko for? Would you go with a three, or would you take one of those two out? And if so, who? It's interesting, really, because I think some have said before Benton Kerr plays well in the free. Yeah. So he's then Lucas Moura, the fall guy, well, the probably. Guy yeah. in both goals. I know. This this is the problem. <laughs> this is why it's up to Antonio. He gets the big money, doesn't he, to decide this. Uh, he, he might rest some. He might, because he did say, I've got to manage him very carefully, having just come back. I think it would be yeah. an out, outrage, but you never know. Say if Skip isn't fit at the weekend, I don't know. Uh, you'd have to say probably Hoybjerg's the one who misses out just because he didn't have the best of games and he did get taken off. And you also know Winks can play uh, a good pass forward. He's proved that in previous weeks. But him himself, he as well might be better in the free. Tough one. Because then, if you take Hoiberg out, you're losing one of your one of Conte's uh, generals in midfield. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I think maybe I think he might go Hoiberg and Benton Kerr, but I could be wrong. We'll have to wait. And just fingers crossed. It is Skip I coming that. back. I think yeah. it'll be too soon for Skip. I think Skip. He seemed to indicate minimum would be another week. Um, but I wondered whether Hoybier was being brought off so he'd be slightly fresher. That was another part of the thinking. Um, whereas he can now say Winks has played two... No, not two 90 minutes, because Benton Co replaced him, didn't he, I think, in the Brighton yes. game? Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, I, I wonder whether it would be Hoybier and, um, and Benton Co, perhaps. It's a tough game. It's another tough game. This is the thing. This, this week was never going to be... You know, they're playing three teams who on their day really can kind of beat any team in the league. They're the funny bunch of teams they've got. Because with Wolves as well, I mean, you're just looking at the Premier League table and given everyone in and around fourth just seems to be throwing points away at times. Um, Wolves aren't far away from fourth. And if they beat Arsenal this evening, did they go above Spurs potentially? I don't actually know, but then if they beat Spurs at the weekend, Wolves could be dark horses for fourth, just looking at it. They've, yeah. uh, they've had a really good season and I was saying this last night to John Veal, it's like fourth is there for the taking for Tottenham this season because I, I think West Ham have been a bit hit and miss recently, might fall away. Manchester United, just terrible <laughs> to be honest under Ralph Ranick. I don't think they've improved I think they'd be better with Solskjaer in charge and then Arsenal you just don't know what you're going to get so it's there for Tottenham to take especially with those game in hands as well so Wolves might also have an eye on fourth given their current form so Sunday is going to be a very very tough game in N17 against them right Shall we move on to one of the big talking points from today? And that is the Y word. It is always a big talking point in the world of Tottenham. The club have been doing a review on it over the past couple of years and they've presented the findings and basically the next step today, they've uh, released a statement on the website 
I will read part of it out. I won't go through it all because it is uh, a very lengthy statement. So basically what they've said, we've always recognised that this is a complex issue and the appropriateness of its use should regularly be assessed. Towards Towards the end of 2019, we commenced the first stage of the consultation with fans and received more than 23,000 responses with 94% acknowledging the Y word can be considered a racist term against a Jewish person. The results of this are on Tottenham's website. The carry on our supporters' use of the Y word was initially taken as a positive step to deflect anti-Semitic abuse that they were subjected to at matches more than 40 years ago from opposition fans who faced no sanctions for their actions. Goes on, it says, after a pause due to the pandemic, we undertook the second phase of the consultation in the form of virtual supporter focus groups. These were facilitated by an independent, experienced moderator and the groups comprised a cross-section of fans in respect of both religion and age. Uh, key findings have shown members of our fan base feel uncomfortable with the Y words continued use of matches. Supporters who were prepared to defend their position on why they use the term expressed an openness to it being reduced if it caused offence to fellow fans. Supporters, especially those of a younger generation, are often unaware of the team's the terms of meaning and its historical context when chanting it, that now more than ever is time to reassess and reconsider its ongoing use. In terms of moving forward, they've said, as a club, we always strive to create a welcoming environment that embraces all our fans so that every one of our supporters can feel included in the match they experience. It's clear the use of this term does not always make this possible, regardless of context and intention, that there is a growing desire and acknowledgement from supporters that the Y word should be used less or stopped being used altogether. I think the key line in this statement is this, it is we recognise how these members of our fan base feel. We also believe it is time to move on from associating this term with our club. Ali, obviously you've read the statement. Do you just want to give us your thoughts on it in general? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important people read the whole statement. As good as your kind of summary was, and, and it hit a lot of the key points, I think it's important that people read it all. Um, look, I'm going to come at it from a personal perspective. Um, for me, it's... Yeah, I grew up a, a Spurs fan. I had no choice. I was born into it. Uh, as, as most Spurs fans find themselves thrust into supporting this team that gives us so many highs and lows. I never really felt comfortable about using that word, and I never did. And the reason behind that is because my dad, he was Jewish, and that whole side of my, the, my family, my dad's side, is Jewish. And it was a word, it's a bit of an older boy, my dad was, so... He kind of comes from a time, especially when that word was used in a negative way. Um, and so for him, it didn't feel appropriate that it was being uh, used in, in such a way, although I understand some people understand, believe that they're kind of using it in a positive way, and I can understand why they believe that. But for him, he didn't like it, and you know, a lot of the, the Jewish side of my family didn't like it. And for me, naturally it wasn't something that I then was ever going to use because I understand that while I think maybe this is where the main problem lies with it, I think is that, uh, how do I put this? I think Spurs fans, there's a belief that they're reclaiming a bad word 
which a negative word, which I understand their logic in that, although I would probably counter it with, I think it slightly concerns me. I think a lot of the people that are claiming that they're reclaiming are not Jewish. So I'm not entirely sure you'll, you can reclaim a word negatively used uh, about a group of people um, when you're not within that group of people. I'm not really sure how that works. Uh, that That's something I've never really understood. But I think maybe the thing I was trying to touch upon there is that there's this kind of when you, when Spurs fans, you know, I, and I want to say this, Spurs fans see it as like, their uh, a bond. I'm not all Spurs, but some Spurs fans see it as this bond, their way of being in this clan, this feeling of belonging, um, without perhaps understanding the the full connotations of the word, um, and also, yeah, I, I think they're they they're somewhat doing it as because other clubs use it in a negative way, and that other clubs sometimes will chant horrific things, uh, racial kind of slurs as well towards the, the kind of Jewish Jewish heritage that Tottenham certainly has. Um, and maybe some Spurs fans believe this is their way of standing up to that. I don't know if that truly kind of works out really. Um, in a way, it's kind of the whole fighting fire with fire thing. I think I'm not sure it entirely works. But I think what I often see when Spurs fans are, are kind of explaining their use of it is that they'll come up with the whole I don't know, um, let's say I've got a Spurs, I've got a, a mate who's Jewish and he's a Spurs fan and he doesn't mind. And it's a bit like, eh, does that really mean that it's still a good thing to say? I think, I think the key to this is, is it a word that offends um, a large group of people, even outside the club? I think from what I understand, from, certainly from the results, there also is a, a large portion of people who are Spurs fans that are offended by it. But also, it offends such a large amount of people outside the club. Those, you know, Jewish people who don't want to hear that word in society. It's not a word that's ever had a positive connotation for them ever. It's always was a word that was used in such a negative way. And I think that's kind of what it comes down to. I think it comes down to this element of yeah, it might feel okay for you, and you might feel this bond and this brotherhood through using this word. Um, and you may know people that are Spurs fans that are also Jewish that are absolutely fine with it, and that's. You know that's very much their opinion, and that that's that's fine for them to have that opinion. But when it is insulting and offensive to people outside the club, I, I still feel that that makes it wrong. I do, and uh, while I appreciate it's it's a thing of habit, it's something a word and a chant that has been used for years. And my fear is that I don't entirely know how the club will stop its use. I think that's going to be such a, I mean, they've said themselves, I think it's going to be a long, long path to trying to to kind of take it out of uh, usage because on one hand, you will get Spurs fans who will properly read up on it and they will really understand how the use of this word is just such an unpleasant one. It really is. But then you will get other, maybe perhaps younger people that will become Spurs fans that will hear this chant will feel part of this clan, this brotherhood, this use of this chant, um, and they perhaps won't understand the full connotation. They will hear people's social media arguments about it. They'll hear the explanations of people who maybe don't have the full uh, take on it and who will say, yes, it's a reclaiming thing, it's all of this, without appreciating the wider scope of it. I just feel that we're in a time now where, I don't know, I think we just... 
some people will say, you know, will kind of beat it down by saying that, oh, you know, we're in a more sensitive world and things like that. I, I think that is a case to a degree in some aspects, but I, I think in this case, it's maybe just a we're at a time where it's not necessary anymore. It's not those people that maybe felt at a certain point, I think, I think if I'm correct, it came out in the 70s as a way to reclaim the word in a positive way. Again, I should stress, I don't know whether the people doing the reclaiming were the ones who really should be reclaiming such a word. Um, but I just feel that maybe we're in a time now where that period of using it in such a way is gone. And I don't know whether society right now demands that that word should be used. And uh, yeah, like I say, I don't know if it's going to be leaving us anytime soon. And I think the club telling fans that they don't want it to be used is not going to do anything because I think naturally those who use it will say, stuff you, who are you to tell me what I can say? And I think especially, and this is not, you know, this is just purely uh, a symptom of the time we're in and, and what's happening. But obviously there's this, I'd say among fans, a frustration with the club and the board. And and if there's ever a time that the fans are probably not going to want to listen to being told what to do by the club, it's probably right now because of this sense of frustration that like on-pitch matters. Um, but unfortunately, I just think it's a bigger subject than that. And uh like I say, my personal experience is something where I just, it's not something I've ever felt comfortable using. I, I, I don't particularly like hearing it, but then I understand uh, it's, such a, it's such a complicated subject because I do believe that the people using it are using it with good intentions, and I think they are, and I don't think there's any kind of issue with that. I don't think anyone's saying that the people saying it are bad people or they're trying to cause offence in any way, shape, or form. I just feel that it's a word that doesn't suit its purpose anymore. Um, and it's, you know, and it's going to be something they're going to hear more and more about and that it's going to keep being pressed. And I think it's going to find itself in the news and, and people are going to get upset about it. And, you know, you only have to listen to the heads of like these Jewish groups that are speaking very eloquently about it and, and why it's, it's just not right anymore. And, and I do. I just hope people read up on it. I hope they read it properly on it, and don't just listen to muppets like me on a podcast talking about my personal thoughts. That they actually read about the word and its kind of longer term. Uh, when I say longer term use, more the way it's been used in such a nasty way towards uh, the Jewish people. And uh, yeah, and hopefully, eventually, it doesn't become a part of things because. I think there's a lot of things to fight for in football and a lot of things to fight. I mean, I don't mess, I don't actually mean, you know, fisticuffs. I mean, but there are, there are elements of football that I think fans should passionately fight for um, and care about. And I don't believe the Y word is one of those, that, um, I think the expression is, it's not a hill to die upon. It's not one of those to really, I feel that is warrant, uh, warrants the fight that I think some fans are putting up for it but uh but look like i say a complex situation i just hope people properly read about it because it's all about understanding as it is with any subject in the world really some really good points then as you said uh people if you've not read the statement already is on tottenham's official website it's a lengthy statement there's plenty you know of good points in there so if you're not seen already do take a look at it 
Right, I think we'll leave that there for today's latest episode of Golden Guest Talk Tottenham. We've discussed plenty, especially on the Southampton game, a bit about Wolves and then also the Y word following Tottenham's review into it. We'll be back next week to review the Wolves game and also then a look ahead to a trip to the Etihad Stadium next Saturday to face who look like you're going to be Premier League champions again, Manchester City. So thank you as ever for tuning in to Golden Guest Tottenham and we'll speak to you next time.